Health Radio. Here are your hosts, Ian Jessup and Corey Yelland. Welcome to another episode of Cannabis Health Radio. I'm Ian Jessup. And I'm Corey Yelland. Today we have the remarkable story of Darren Blackwell of the United Kingdom, who at the age of 10 was diagnosed with leukemia. If that wasn't bad enough, 18 months later, he was diagnosed with a second cancer, the extremely rare Langerhans cell sarcoma. Only 50 cases have ever been recorded, but nobody has ever been found to have the two cancers combined. And joining us today to talk about cannabis and the recovery of her son is Callie Blackwell, whose book, The Boy in Seven Billion, came out last week. Kelly, you're probably busy trying to sell your book, and uh, I went on Amazon today, and uh, within less than a week, it has 12 reviews, and all of them are five stars. So that's excellent. Good for you. Thanks for joining us. Since, Thanks for having me. Since the story first gained widespread public prominence in the media worldwide, what has the reaction that you've received from people? Um, the reaction has been fantastic, actually. Um, it's been incredibly supportive. I, I would say, having looked across all media outlets and social media and things like that, I would say that it's 95% incredibly supportive of, of me and what I did, um, which is which is actually what I expected. It's really what I hoped for. But it's kind of what I expected as well. I, I've i been watching uh, public opinion grow and change in the UK over the years. And um, I felt confident that coming out of my story now that I would I would have a lot of support. And it's certainly been what I found. And so I'm, I'm, I'm incredibly grateful for that. What are the other 5% tell you? Uh, well, from what other people have told me, they've said, because I haven't actually seen anything myself. Um, it's been a few people that say, you know, I shouldn't have given my son a drug that wasn't tested. I could have caused him more damage. That's basically been the crux of it. It's been people saying, well, you know, how did she know she wasn't going to do him any more harm? And I mean, I suppose my answer to that is that I could answer those 5% is, well, he was already dying. They'd already said that he he had three days to live. You know, what what could I really have done that would have been any worse? I could have killed him. And, and nobody's ever died <laughs> from cannabis either, so... No. Yeah. No, exactly. There may be people, for whatever reason, haven't heard your story and that of your son, Darren. So take us back to the beginning and tell us about when you first found out about Darren's illness. Okay. Um, It was July 2010, and Darren was 10 years old. It was four days into the summer holidays, and he was enjoying his life. And he just became ill. He, He wasn't really... He wasn't incredibly ill. He'd just gone off his food, and um, he said it tasted a bit funny. And eventually, I ended up taking him to hospital to have a blood test, and they told us there and then, that, you know, he had uh, he had leukemia. And so we, uh, <clears throat> it was a, a roller coaster ride that you know I got on. I never bought a ticket for it, and I couldn't get it off. But I, we were on this roller coaster, and it was. An incredible whirlwind of information, a learning curve that just 
oh, the, the stuff that we learned over the following week or so just about leukemia and things like that and, and treatments, it was absolutely overwhelming. Um, but there was nothing other than just the, the conventional. There was no mention of anything else, no mention of diet changes, no mention. Of, in fact, we were encouraged to feed him whatever rubbish we could get into him in order that he didn't lose weight. Um, you know, so we, we did everything we were told to do. And then 18 months later, he started to complain about his tonsils and they were hurting him. And it actually took us six months to be taken seriously by the local hospital here. Um, I was actually told that I was ridiculous for even suggesting that it could be a secondary cancer. But persistent, so I, I eventually got uh, an ENT specialist to look at him to look at his tonsils, and he proceeded to take them out. They went to histology, and it came back that they were actually cancerous. And it took a further eight weeks for them to discover what kind of cancer it was, because it was so rare. They had to go down onto a molecular, almost chromosomal level to sort of distinguish what kind of cancer this was. And they um, they determined that both cancers, Langhans cell sarcoma and the leukemia, had originated in his bone marrow. So they decided that the only way to treat him really was a bone marrow transplant. And there's been no other recorded case of any individual worldwide having the two cancers. At the moment, well, at the time when he was when he was diagnosed with it, I had a look online and I tried to find other people with Langerhans cell sarcoma because it's so rare the hospitals, you know, had nothing to tell me. And I, on my own, found five other people. Um, I went back to the doctors and I said, you know, this is what I found. And they said, yeah, it's pretty much what we've found. Um, there has been some reported cases, and it, the, the, these people aren't alive anymore, um, where people have developed leukemia after a Langerhans cell sarcoma diagnosis, um, but once their Langerhans cell sarcoma is gone, but never the other way around, and certainly not having treatment for, for both of them together, apparently. So this this made him incredibly rare at the at the time. What sort of treatment was Darren undergoing during this period? Um, from his leukemia, he had intensive chemotherapy. He had about nine months of that. Um, and which then went on to a maintenance where he would have um, oral chemotherapy every single day. And then once a month, he'd have uh, intravenous, various scans, aspirates, things like that. And then when they decided that he'd need a bone marrow transplant, um, he had to go back into hospital. And he had another five months of intensive chemotherapy, actually far harder than the first lot, um, because there was no protocol for him. They said that they were going to give him everything they could without killing him. So he effectively had adult doses of most of the drugs, um, he, that really, really, he did really suffer um, throughout those five months. He had there was actually a point where I was I was ready to call, um, pull the plug on it all. He got so incredibly ill, and I couldn't understand why they were doing it because his cancer had been cut out of his throat. The leukemia was in remission, yet they were putting so much chemotherapy into a child that no longer had cancer. I, I just couldn't get my head around it. And um, the doctor turned to me and said, well, you know, we're, we're more concerned about what we can't see rather than what we can see. So I, I you know, I carried on and allowed them to keep going with it. Um, thankfully, he got through it eventually. And then we went to Bristol and he had another 12 days of conditioning where they, um, he had lots and lots of uh, sessions of total radiation. So total body radiation. And he also had quite a few sessions directly on his throat. Um, once his bone marrow was deemed as completely empty, then he had his first transplant on the 1st of March 2013. 
when, you ta- when you talk about radiation on the throat, we, who was it we talked to last week, Corey, about who had radiation? Uh, Chico. Yes. And uh, the radiation on his throat, his uh, mother, Angela, was indicating that maybe it had an effect on his growth. Yeah. Yes, it has, yeah. Yeah. Has it ha- had the same effect with Darren? Yes. Yeah, he's um, he's 17 and he's still a little bit shorter than me and I'm only five foot six. So, yeah, it's it, the pituitary gland they, they speak about because it's the, the whole head area and the thyroid. The thyroid gets hit so um, a lot as well. So, yeah, he's had he has issues now with um, kind of salivary as well. Sometimes his mouth, sometimes he produces way too much. Other times he doesn't produce enough. He's also lost about a quarter of the soft palate at the back of his throat. When they removed the tonsils, they also removed a lot of that. So sometimes he, he can choke on water. Food can pass up and, and go into the nasal cavity and things like that. So he's been left with an awful lot of side effects from the treatment. He's He's got twisted knees. His ankles are, are, are twisted. So he's very short. He's infertile. Um, puberty is kind of starting now at 17 um yeah he, he's been left very much like chico with the you know he's on growth hormones as well so hopefully it's um hopefully he's, he's having time to catch up kelly initially when when darren was going through all of this were you looking for um alternative treatments or were you pretty much just in that rut of doing whatever the doctor said oh i, I completely towed the party line for the first two years i had no um i was told actually very early on do not google anything we will tell you all you need to know to which i i actually ignored them and i started looking at statistics and things which just upset me so i i actually stopped um it was only when darren had had his second transplant and that had also failed due to him having an adenovirus I don't know, virus is just very simple. It's like a cold. But if you have no immune system, it can be very detrimental. And the first two transplants were failed because the drugs they were treating to treat the adenovirus also killed the bone marrow. So they gave him his third bag, um, well, it's his first bag of his own cells. They gave him that and they told me, we're not going to treat the adenovirus anymore. You know, Darren's got about 22, 23 days until his own bone marrow kicks in. We're going to leave the adenovirus alone. So you want to just hope that his bone marrow kicks in before the virus kills him. And then a doctor said to me, I suggest you just pray. To which I, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm a very proactive person. So I started looking on the internet for alternatives. I found a list as long as my arm of alternatives to get rid of adenovirus. And I subsequently went into town, spent about £200 on all sorts of things, and came back and, and started to administer him all these alternatives and and i actually managed to get rid of his adenovirus within a week what kind of things did Uh, you give him um manuka honey olive olive leaf extract echinacea um uh, pal darko tea lemon balm i had all sorts of uh, lipospheric vitamin c i had all sorts going on um and and i had a really good result from it and and so i started to think well you know if alternatives can work here where else can they work? And, and cannabis kept popping up. And um, I started to, to watch a lot of anecdotal videos and things like that. But it was all to do with cancer. And so because Darren didn't have cancer, I completely dismissed it. I just thought, well, he doesn't need it. So it wasn't until probably a good few months after that, that, again, he was in a lot of pain. And, um, and I started to look at alternatives for pain. 
because I'd asked them for Bedrican and they, they refused because Bedrican's not licensed for children in the UK. Um, they don't mention that most chemotherapy drugs are not licensed for children either. They still give those. But um, so Bedrican was a no-go. So, again, we started to look and, and, and we just thought, well, we're just going to have to go to source here. We, you know, if, we, if the doctors can't help us, then maybe we should try and source some cannabis for ourselves and see, and see what it does. So what was the first form of cannabis that you gave Darren? Um, it was a tincture. It was, um, he'd had his third transplant, which had failed, and he was now onto his fourth, which apparently had also failed. He had uh, two catastrophic infections in his hand and one in his mouth, and um, he was in such pain with it, and, and they were upping the morphine and upping the everything. Fentanyl he was on. Um, he started to try and introduce sleeping tablets and things like that. And so we had made... Uh, a tincture just out of cannabis and you put it in some vegetable glycerin you cook it in a in a slow cooker i'm telling you you probably know um and then you take out the plant and you're left with this beautiful honey like syrup and 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 you know we, we made that and we put it in a little vape pen for him in the hope that you know vaping it would would be enough and it, it just wasn't it wasn't really it was it gave him a little bit of a buzz but it certainly couldn't go anywhere near uh to touching the, the pain that he was experiencing so again, we dismissed it. We went, okay, we've tried. It didn't work. And we pushed it to one side. And it was around about that time as well that they started to tell us that we need to go to the hospice. Um, What's going through your mind at this point, Callie? You know, I mean, you're trying everything you can to turn your son around. Yeah, sheer, sheer desperation. Um, I asked for um, granulocytes, um because he was having these infections and his own bone marrow was, was struggling so much to engraft. And, and I, so I looked online and I found out they could give granulocytes. And, and so on my request, they did try those. They didn't work. Unfortunately, you know, I asked for everything that I, I, I was coming to them with ideas and, and I would fall at every single hurdle because either it wasn't licensed or it just didn't work. And we were running out of options, what they could offer me, you know, they did say to me, we, you know, we will leave no stone unturned, but we're running out of stones. And so when they eventually said, you know, nobody's ever engrafted after 50 days, apparently. We were now on day 46 and there was no activity in his bone marrow whatsoever. So we had to take him to the hospice. And, you know, I asked him, I said, well, effectively, how long are we talking? You know, they're telling me that it's only the bone marrow, um, the antibiotics that are keeping him alive. And they effectively want me to unplug him and take him off all of these drugs. And I said, well, how many days are we talking when I do? And the doctor said, well, three days, a week at most. Um, wow. You know, when do you, when do you want to do it? I thought, well, <laughs> I don't know. Oh, my good God. You know, when do you want to start that? I mean, that is just an unbelievable decision for a parent to make. I mean, I don't know how you can make a decision like that. It's unfathomable. It no, it's unfathomable to me just to say un unplug him, and uh, within three days he may be gone. Mm. Yeah. It was. Um, I suppose at the time it was a, a it was a long drawn out process. So um, it didn't happen overnight, and, and so we were able to adjust and literally take it step by step and day by day. You know, right at the beginning, when, when your child's diagnosed with cancer straight away, you know there's a chance that they're not going to survive this. So you you know right from that day one that there is a chance you're going to say goodbye to him one day. And obviously you don't want it to ever get there. But four years down the line, when you're now looking at 
you know, do not resuscitate forms. So I had to sit and fill them all in and tick, you know, tick all the boxes that says no. You know, do you want CPR? No. Just a, a list of, of these things. And, and so you, I knew that the second I handed that paperwork in, that was it. We were on our own with him. And it was a case of letting nature take its course. Pally, was, um, sorry to interrupt, but was Darren aware okay. of just how critical things had gotten? Yes. Mm. Yes, he was aware all the way through. Um, he had, we, we, right from day one, we had promised to always be honest with him because ultimately it's his body. It, it was him that was going through it. He needed to be able to make decisions as well, depending on how he felt about things. Um, I, I would have felt it deeply unfair for him to be going through all that and not really know the, the enormity of it all. Because ultimately it had to be part of his decision to go to the hospice as well. I thought uh, one of the things which really caught my attention was a TV interview you did with Darren, and he was asked about facing death, and he said, once you accept it, it's quite mm. calming. And I thought, how profound for, how old was he then, about 16, 15, 16 uh, years old? Well, at the, at, at the time, 17? at the time when, he was 14 at the time when when he knew we were going to the hospice, um, but now he's 17. Yeah. Yeah. But he just, uh, yeah. he was, he was accepting of it, quite calming. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, he, uh, and he'd even, always been, sorry, on, he sorry. E- even planned his own funeral, he said, and had costumes for people. <laughs> <laughs> that was very, yes. very funny. Yeah. Oh, he, he, yeah, he made sure that he was going to have the last laugh, even if he wasn't going to be there. The, uh, <laughs> some of the costumes, he didn't even allow us to pick our own costumes. He literally dictated to the guests the costumes they were going to have to wear. And some of them, my mum, for instance, she was raised a Catholic and he said that she had to come as a nun. And so, <laughs> he, you know, he knew that even from up there, he was going to be having a right good giggle at us lot, all standing there in these incredibly embarrassing outfits. What was um, yours? What was yours going to be, Kelly? Um, mine was actually he, I got away with it quite nicely. Mine was Florence Nightingale, so I have I actually have the outfit. I have the outfit with the hooped skirt and everything. And um, it's for yeah. it's for a Halloween party, is it? I, I should I should get out Halloween party at some point. Although <laughs> Simon's was even better because. Um, I never forget um, when when they finally did tell us that, you know, that that's it. We, we had to then go back in the room and say to Darren, you know, he turned to us and said, OK, what did they say? I said, yeah, they've said that's it. There's nothing more they can do now. And he said, OK, then. All right, then. And he, he turned to his dad and said, so um, are you still going to carry on with the agreement? And I looked over at them and I said, what agreement? And Simon sort of shook his head and said, oh, my God, this is something that 18 months ago they'd cooked up together, apparently, in that they made a pact with one another that whichever one died first, the other one had to go to the funeral dressed as the Grim Reaper. And, um, yeah. His dad was going to go as the Grim Reaper. Yeah, he has the outfit. He has the outfit and everything (laughs) that we bought. Good God. Yeah, that was that was the. Uh, he said, "Yes, son. I'll. You know, I'm not going to break my promise. I'll stick to. Uh, I'll stick to the agreement." So, yeah, he's got a full Grim Reaper outfit. <laughs> Another one for Halloween. Yeah, that is hilarious. That's great. So after this, when the doctor said, uh, "That's it. There's nothing more we can do." What happened next? What did you do? Um. Well, we took him to the hospice, and he he hung around for a little while, and it got to around about. Day 70. So we'd, we'd been in the hospice, you know, a couple of weeks, three weeks now. And, 
you know, he was going nowhere. He didn't seem to be going anywhere. And he started to get quite anxious. And I asked the doctors for another bone marrow aspirate, actually, to um, to just absolutely clarify there was absolutely nothing in there. And they did one, and it came back. Wherever so sorry, there's no activity. You're literally going to have to just wait now. Something will kill him eventually, but you've just got to wait. And that news absolutely devastated Darren. He he just he got so tired at this point. They were upping the morphine. They were, you know, again they were trying to get him onto more sleeping tablets. And he made it very clear in his death plan that he didn't want to go. He didn't want to die um, unconscious. He wanted to be very aware of every single thing that went on. And this morphine wasn't able to do that for him. And he was pleading with me to, you know, try and get them, get him off the morphine. And so, yeah, it got to day 70 and he, he'd been screaming out in the night, you know, just wanting to die. He begged me to take him to Brussels because they just legalised euthanasia for children over 12. You know, short of asking me to put a pillow on his face, we'd had some some pretty, um, you know, cutting conversations where he'd, he'd asked me to help him. And I was desperate. I just, you know, I, I, I couldn't watch him like this anymore. And I thought, do you know what? I looked at the under the bed and the jar of tincture was under the bed and I thought, oh, just just put it in his mouth. So how you know, let's just give him a teaspoon of the stuff. It's gonna you know, if nothing else, it'll calm him down. Hopefully it'll it'll chill him out a little bit, it'll take away the anxiety that he was clearly suffering. And um so I did. And I only drew up five mil, sublingually under his tongue, and within half an hour the the difference in him was absolutely amazing. His demeanour completely changed. He chilled out. He he was relaxed. He was eating a little bit. But the most significant thing I saw that first day was um, Darren had become incredibly addicted to a drug called cyclozine and um, so much so that he would literally scream at the nurses for it. And, you know, I've never seen anyone behave that way. I, I would liken it to a heroin addict. It, it was incredibly frightening to see him so addicted to this drug. And... I totally forgot that they were going to bring it to him that evening. And so there he is quite mellowed out on, on the cannabis and the nurse turns up with this cyclozine. And I immediately went into panic mode and thought, Oh my God, what if I'm going to cause some kind of contraindication with the drugs? And what if I cause, you know, what if I cause all, I don't know. And, um, I didn't need to worry because Darren actually turned to her and said, you can take it away. I don't want it. Wow. And she was, yeah, she was absolutely flabbergasted. She looked at me and said, are you sure? And I said, yeah, just take it before he changes his mind. Take it away. And he's never had it since. And so that very first day, I saw it immediately as an exit drug. Holy, that's impressive. That is an amazing story. Mm-hmm. He takes the, the, the tincture. He's starting to feel mm-hmm. better. He's eating a bit more. Take us through the story as it progresses. Yeah, so... um I was seeing a tremendous results in just in just in palliative care alone. That you know, we thought, my God, if he if he can die like this, this is this is all we've ever wanted for for you know to pass peacefully and and not be absolutely you know overdosed in morphine. So, um, yeah, what happened afterwards was it totally blew us all away. We'd um, I'd been given the tincture for about five days, and one day we were in the in the lounge, and Darren had his hand in between his legs. He was asleep. Now, these two infections that he had in his hand were his fingers, his uh, middle finger, his index finger and his thumb were all necrotic down to the first um, first knuckle. And they had debrided them and they told us, you know, do not take those bandages off and they need to be changed under surgical conditions. Don't touch them. He looked like Mickey Mouse, you know, and we were having to be very careful with these bandages. And so 
he pulls his hand out from between his legs and he just picked up his hand and kind of looked at me and shouted, mum, mum, look, 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 my finger. And so, well, there's just a finger there, well, you know. And, and then I noticed I could see this third finger and it wasn't black. It wasn't gross. It was, it just looked like he'd been in the bath for a while and he had no fingernail. Now, we just didn't know what to do. We were absolutely flabbergasted that, you know, I, I was told that there's no way you can even produce skin cells without function in bone marrow. So the doctors started running around the hospice. The doctors were called in from Bristol Children's Hospital and they demanded that they do another blood test. And I said, well, there's no point. You literally told me a week ago there's nothing in there. And they said, well, we need we need to look. And they looked and his neutrophil count was 0.25. Now, we'd gone into the hospice at 0.005. So all of a sudden, his white count had turned up from somewhere. How did he get out of hospice? Um, it carried on. I, I carried on giving. I carried on giving the tincture, and I watched his blood count go up and up and up. Um, then it got to the point where they just said, well, you're not dying anymore. We don't need... <laughs> you have to get out. <laughs> you have to get out. You have to leave. Yeah, it was. We, we spent eight weeks in the hospice in total before they, can, they evicted us. And, and uh, We've been waiting for you to go and you're not going, so you've got to yeah. leave. <laughs> yeah, you need to get out now. Um, but it was wonderful. You know, the, the staff there are absolutely amazing. I'm very close to a lot of them even now. And, and um, unfortunately, Darren wasn't sick enough to go into hospital, but he wasn't sick enough to be in a hospice but he wasn't well enough to go home so they put us in a hostel around the corner from from the hospital where we were now sharing with 16 other families and sharing a kitchen and all the facilities mm. and and that that was incredibly difficult um because the hospice was an amazing place and all of a sudden we, we you know and and Darren the the hospital couldn't tell us whether or not he was going to survive or whether this was an anomaly or whether in two weeks time it was all going to go wrong again because our lives before that had been such a roller coaster even when things looked really good they didn't go good for very long so we were very dubious about getting too excited about all of this because we thought well it could all go wrong again tomorrow and and you know so you try not to get too excited because you don't want to be too disappointed I suppose and I actually I, I thought to myself you know could this be a complete coincidence? You know, I gave the tincture. So I actually asked the doctors and I said, you know, was there anything that you gave him that could have done this? And they said no. And they called him a miracle. I didn't use that word first. They did. Kelly, can um, I um, interrupt for a moment and just ask you, when yes, you uh, left hospice, did you tell the nurses and the doctors that you had been giving him that tincture? Uh, no. There was, there was a couple of nurses at the hospice that knew. Um, and so they watched alongside and they saw everything that happened, but they were also very aware that I was breaking the law and they didn't want to get me in trouble. I knew that this, you know, I had looked into cannabis. I'd looked into the, the legalities of it and I'd looked into, you know, the dangerous things about it and things which I couldn't find any. And, um, and so I knew that I was facing 14 years in prison every time I put that syringe in his mouth. But what it did for him, I would serve every single day of a life sentence because of what happened. You know, it's, it would be worth it. He's still here. Um, and, it, and it worked for him. And I actually, I actually got to the point where I wanted to know whether it was a coincidence or not. So I started to manipulate how much I gave him. 
And when I didn't give it to him, his white count would half. And when I did give it to him, it would double. And I watched that over six or seven blood counts. And I watched it go up and down in collaboration with, with the administration of the cannabis. And that was enough for me to know for a fact that it had a direct positive effect on his immune system. Do you know, Kelly, that's very similar to an interview we did yesterday with a fellow in California, who in San Diego, who had leukemia. He had to get his blood cell count down as low yes. as possible. He says they almost bring you to the point of death, death. Yeah. before they yes, do the transplant. And his wasn't dropping because he was uh, unbeknownst to the medical profession taking cannabis oil. So he, wow, yeah. so he was taking this oil and his blood, white blood count wasn't dropping. And so his fiance told him, stop the oil and see what happens. He stopped the oil and within a day, his count dropped. Yeah. Wow, very that similar, quick, yeah. very similar to ex- exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, with Darren. Yeah, we need we need so much more research into into how it can affect the immune system because, yeah, they do with, with leukemia, with all cancers. What kills most people is the fact that they have such a compromised immune system. So you're you're treating people with cancer by destroying their immune system, and their immune system is actually quite capable of of you know you need an immune system to be able to to fight cancer and yet so so what does conventional treatment do take away your immune system it's yeah. very contradictory and and it seems absolutely ridiculous when you really really start to you know dissect exactly how they treat it and and so if we could start using cannabis alongside chemotherapy to keep people's immune systems up so they can have the chemotherapy without actually being you know falling foul to a cold there's you know there's so much more needs to be looked into it i I think it does much more than we can even we even know about now you know so kelly when darren was taking the tincture did you ever progress from the tincture which is different than the cannabis oil yes yes i did tell us about that okay so um when his immune system had got back up to how i was happy with it you know i i stopped i stopped the, the tincture because i thought well you know, just, there's no point giving it to him anymore. It's done what he needed to do. But unfortunately, for the following six months, um, because there was the uncertainty of whether Darren was going to survive or not, he he got very depressed and uh, actually tried to kill himself um, for the following six months. Um, you know, I was virtually on suicide watch with him. I, I was sitting there thinking, you know, do I let him have his shoelaces? Shall I take his belt away from him? I was convinced that I was going to wake up and find him swinging somewhere one day because he just did not want to be alive in the state that he was in. Um, so he stopped eating. He, he literally just did not eat for six months. And he got down to 26 kilos. And at 14 years old, that's incredibly thin. You know, he was diagnosed at 10 at 36 and a half kilos. So four years later, you know, minus 10 kilos. And the hospital, they they couldn't offer him anything. I, I, I asked them for um, psychiatric help. I asked them to get a counsellor to talk. I asked them for anything, just help him um, get his head around no longer dying when he had accepted that he was going to die. He was 14 years old and it was incredibly difficult for him to get his head around this. And I was met with, um, yes, we'll help him. We're going to section him, force feed him and, and sedate him. And I just thought, oh, come on, give the kid a break. Why are we going down this road of just absolute force, forcing treatment on, on somebody when we could just literally talk to them? No, not getting to the root cause of things as per usual. And so I, um, I begged them to let me take him to Spain and I said, 
Um, a friend of mine is allowing us to stay in their villa. Um, we'd really like to take him on holiday. You know, we haven't been on holiday for six years. Let me take him away. If he's still not better by the time we come back, then I may have to allow you to do whatever it is you want to do to him. Um, which they agreed. And so we went to Spain and we'd been involved with uh, the cannabis uh, social clubs in both Cardiff and in Bristol. And this name kept popping up all the time. You need to speak to Jeff Ditchfield. You need to see Jeff Ditchfield. And so we found out he was in Spain and we decided that while we were in Spain on holiday anyway, we'd drive the two hours down and go and visit him. And uh, we only wanted to shake his hand and just thank him for all the work that he'd done, you know, with, with children and stuff across the UK. But we ended up actually spending the entire day with him and leaving with a syringe of oil, um, which he said to us, you know, I think I can help you with Darren's problems, um, which at this point were incredible pain in his legs and this obviously this not eating and the wanting to die. So we went back to the villa and the following morning, I had a tiny, tiny amount of oil on this cracker and just thought, oh, what's this going to do, you know, and gave it to him. And about an hour later, um, I could hear the boys splashing around downstairs in the in the swimming pool. And Simon and I were making up some lunch and, and we called down, you know, do, do you want any lunch? We're going to make some. And Darren shouted up, can you make me loads, please? I'm absolutely starving. And wow. um, from not even eating. now, that's still, yeah, mm -hmm. from not eating a morsel for six months. Um, and, and even now that remembering you know, it kind of goosebumps go over me because although they're very simple words, to both Simon and I, it was music to our ears, and we just burst into tears and proceeded to make so much food. It was uh, <laughs> it was unbelievable, and he ate continuously for about twelve hours that day. Oh um, my goodness! Yeah, he just did not stop eating. It cost us a fortune, but painted. <laughs> <laughs> Money well um, spent. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Kelly, you were talking about uh, Jeff Ditchfield and that you had heard of him. Just for people who are listening who might not be aware of who Jeff is, can you just do a you know one minute synopsis of uh, of who he is and what he represents? Well, to me, Jeff is um, he's a truly amazing man who is just selfless and goes out of his way to do what he can for for people um, who are suffering. And, and, you know, for years he's been giving away cannabis oil to people, to children. I know he's helping at the moment over 100 children alone in the UK. Um, just uh, I, would, I would be a completely different person without Jeff in my life. Um, I, I have the utmost respect for the man. And he's a wonderful human being who's just, you know, he puts aside his own health concerns and he puts aside his own, his own freedom, um, a lot of the time, you know, by openly and honestly saying out on in the public, you know, I give I give cannabis oil to people. He knows that he's facing 14 years in prison as well, just for helping people. And so I, I have I have so much admiration for Jeff. I really do. Would it be fair to say that uh, without Jeff, D Darren probably wouldn't be here? Um, yeah, I, I would actually say. I mean, I. I so I didn't know Jeff at the first time with the tincture, but definitely the, the second time when we met him, I, I attribute to cannabis to, to saving my son's life twice because that time in Spain, we cancer is a very different thing. And as you know yourself, Corey, that you you can't really get angry with cancer because it's not a thing. But when your child, after everything they've been through, and it's your child who's then deciding no. I'm now going to kill myself. The frustration we had with Darren was so, so difficult to deal with. And we just didn't know what to do with him that I know had it not been for going to Spain and meeting Jeff that I, 
I, d I don't know where we'd be now. I certainly don't think sectioning, force feeding and, and sedation would have been a, a long-term, um, you know, a long-term thing to do with him. But, I mean, subsequently we spent the next 12 days and Darren Eck continuously for the next 12 days. Mm -hmm. um, we got back home and he had to go and see his consultant and we walked in and his consultant looked at me and Darren went off with another doctor to go and be examined and she said my God, his mental health has improved by 300%. And I said, yeah, I know. And she said, he doesn't want to die anymore. I went, I know. And she said, and he's put on four kilos. I said, yes, I know. And she said, my God, that holiday did in the world of good. I said, yes, it was the holiday. Yes. <laughs> we can call it that. Um, yeah, it was the sunshine, obviously. Um, so I absolutely attribute it to, to saving his life again for a second time. Do the doctors who treated Darren originally know about his cannabis treatment? They do now. They do now. They do. Yeah, they do now. Yeah. The news yeah. is kind of out there. So where yes, where is uh, Darren now, health-wise? Um, God, he, um, again, the only things he has wrong with him are long-term side effects of all the treatment they gave him. Um He's got incredibly high iron levels due to a lot of trans, uh, transfusions he has. So he's having that looked at. He has to give blood once a month uh, to try and get those those down. Um, so he's short, he's infertile, he's, he has a lot of pain still in his legs now. But other than that, as far as his as far as his bone marrow is concerned, it's absolutely perfect. There's there's absolutely nothing wrong with his immune system whatsoever. So the cancer, he's basically he's cancer free in this moment. As as far as we know, yeah, nothing has come back. Obviously, the concern is there that either cancer will come, come back, back um, yeah. because because he has his own bone marrow back. So, you know, we 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 do what we can to to prevent it. He's on a very we're all on a very strict diet. You know, no sugar, no dairy, no meat, no processed foods. Um, you know, we avoid what we can. We we don't drink fizzy drinks. Yeah, we, we're very boring, according to other people, you know, because we're not we don't eat conventionally. We don't eat like the rest of the rest of the UK. So mm -hmm. what I want to ask you is with all the eating that Darren did in Spain, he wants yes. to become a chef, doesn't he? Yes. <laughs> yes, he wants. Yeah, he wants to be a vegan chef. Yeah, he's uh, and he's a he's a blooming good one as well. He's uh, I don't know where he's got it from. And the irony is certainly not lost on us that, you know, he tried to kill himself by not eating and now he's making amazing food. Um, but I think some of that probably comes partly with spending five years where everything tastes like cardboard as well. So he's, um, yeah, he's very, very passionate about cooking now and he loves doing it. So tell me about the Kelly Blackwell before Darren's illness and the Kelly Blackwell today how has this changed you as a person immeasurably and I wouldn't change any of it for the world um the person that I was before I suppose very similar to everybody else we were both Simon and I had jobs we worked all the hours God sent so that we could spend the weekend together you know um we would get upset about the silliest little things, you know, if my phone wasn't working, it's the end of the world. And, you know, but before something like cancer happens to you, you don't have anything to put it into perspective, I guess. You know, you become very spoilt in your first world pains, you know. Um, and then something like this happens and, and we just see life very differently, very, very differently. We we take everything. Um, nothing is for granted. I I appreciate the smallest of things. 
you know i wake up every morning and i'm and i'm just grateful to be alive and i'm grateful that he's alive and and i love hearing my boys fighting as well which i know a lot of people don't like their children fighting i love hearing them them you know doing what boys should be doing because i i know there is a very real well you know there was a very real chance that my my youngest would be sat in his room by himself and and actually so to to have both my boys here it's Every single day, I'm, I feel blessed. How did your other boy deal with Darren's illness? Um, he was very young. He was five years old when Darren was first diagnosed. So, you know, so, so very small. And, oh, he's been incredible. He's been just an incredible little man who never once complained that he had, I don't know how many birthdays and parties that he had ruined because... Darren spiked the temperature and therefore everything, you know, we couldn't plan anything for so many years. And Dylan just, just got on with it. He, the whole time that we were in Bristol, um, Dylan was sat under the desk at the end of Darren's bed with his Lego and he would make stop motion movies and, and things like that. He, he occupied himself and he, he showed the greatest amount of patience. You know, he, he was, I have, I have to take my hat off to him. He, he gave me no trouble throughout those five years. He really did take a step back. Um, and realised there was something bigger and more important going on, and so he, yeah, bless him, he really, he really kind of got pushed to the to the back. Um, so now we're, you know, now we try and, and make sure that we can give him everything that he can that we possibly can, and experiences and things like that. You know, he's he's done a lot of things that most children his age would never get a chance to do, and and he appreciates everything that that happens to him as well. So I'm very proud of both my boys. They're they're both. Um, fantastic fantastic human beings does your younger boy know that his mother is florence nightingale and the father is the grim reaper <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah he, he was gonna go with someone from star wars as well so he he, uh, he was happy um yeah, D- Dylan also knew everything that was going on, and it, it would be age appropriate. You know, we we didn't ever want to lie to him either, so we would tailor um, we would tailor the information that we gave to Dylan um, so that it wasn't overwhelming for him. You know, no point telling a child about um, neutrophil counts; they don't understand. So, um, but we always made sure that Dylan absolutely understood. He knew why we were at the hospice. He knew he uh, you know he he knew how ill Darren was. He knew how many days he'd been given, and and yeah, and he he got on with it as well, like a like a trooper. Kelly, at at one point, you, you were essentially forced to live in another country. Can you tell us about that a bit? Yeah, so uh, a little while after after Darren got better, um, we were well. I was in particular. I was contacted by uh, a guy who Jeff had uh, exposed on the Project Storm film as a scammer. And um, this guy decided to take it upon himself to um, harass me uh, through any any social media that he could get hold of. Um, and if I deleted or blocked him, another, another profile would pop up. I want to mention his name because uh, if he wa- if he wants to sue me, he can because my son is a lawyer, so uh, I'll I'll deal with it when it comes. But his name is Jason Teacups. 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 E a c u p s. Teacups. Well, teacups and eacups, same thing. But he sent us an email accusing Corey of selling oil, which is totally false. I've never sold oil. And he accused Jeff Ditchfield of being a scammer, which is totally false. If anyone is a scammer, it's Jason Eacups. 
And I mm-hmm. think people listening, especially in the UK, because the UK has so many scammers, Jason yeah. Ecups is a scammer. And people should be wary of him and his cabal that he has with him. And mm-hmm. uh, I just want to clarify that. So yeah, I'm sorry. He, has, he has victimized a lot of people, a lot yeah. of people with absurd lies, etc. And uh, this... This what that he did with you sounds just completely over the top. Yeah, so, sorry, carry, you're yeah, carry on there, Callie, please. Okay, yeah, he's. Um, I have subsequently found out uh, that yeah, I, I wasn't the only target. He and he likes to target. Um, he likes to target parent of parents of sick children. Um, yeah, he professes to care. So if he really cared. You know, he wouldn't be using these parents of sick children in order to get at Jeff because uh, clearly he hates Jeff. And all this stems from just trying to get at Jeff and discredit him. And he cares not how he goes about it Um, so much so that, yeah, I I ended up having a nervous breakdown um, and and got to the point where, yeah, we ended up um, we ended up deciding to leave the country and go traveling um, just because it was the only way that I saw that he would stop. Yeah, he's, um, and he, he is relentless, he, 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 and uh, you know, to threaten to have your, t- you know, to turn you into authorities has got to be the lowest of the low. Yeah, no, no longer felt me. safe in the UK. Really, didn't feel safe in the UK. Um, I don't know if he knew where I lived. I don't know how much he knew about me, but he certainly, he certainly knew enough. He knew that I'd given Darren cannabis, and that was enough for me because. You know, threatening social services on me. He was threatening to phone the police. He was, and I say he's done this to so many people. Not only, you know, we're trying so hard to keep our children alive and and get over a horrendous time, and then you get somebody like Jason Ecups who, on top of it, decides he's going to relentlessly send you email after email and just tweeting about me and think the things he said about me on Twitter, even now he's trying to discredit me. Um, he's contacted my publisher. He's contacting my PR agent. He's contact, he's tweeting literally anyone who will shine a light on me. He's tweeting them, trying to get them to, to turn their back on me. And it's not working, unfortunately, because none of what he says is true. And I'm no longer scared of him because now the world knows that I've gave Darren cannabis. So he now no longer has anything on me. And I'm not hiding from him any longer. You know, if he wants to try and prove that I'm a scammer, and then he can try and prove it. He's not going to get anywhere. But it's just, I know that there are other parents in the, in the UK now who are still being targeted by him, who are helping their children. And he's threatening them now. And it's all because of prohibition. You know, if there was no prohibition and cannabis was regulated and legalised in the UK, then there would be no scope for people like Jason Ecups and other drug dealers and, and drug dealing gangs. There would be no room for them. They would, they would have no power whatsoever. Kelly, it was uh, wonderful to talk to you. I mean, you have a very interesting story. I'm sure it's a story that you. Uh, you probably wouldn't want to deal with again. I know you wouldn't want to deal no. with it again. <laughs> Once is enough, but it has changed your life. It has saved your son. It, it's, I guess it's brought your family closer together, hasn't it? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. There's... Um I mean, unfortunately, I did. I did watch quite a few families actually get split up by a cancer diagnosis. There were many families um, who couldn't deal with it for whatever reason, and um, I feel very, very fortunate that I, I had managed to meet a man who is clearly my, my, you know, my sole partner in life, and we, we were able to go through some of the most horrendous times together. But actually, most of the time we were apart. You know, I didn't see Simon for weeks on end and we'd often see each other for 15 minutes over a coffee and we'd swap our car keys and and off off we'd have to go so you know 
when we were together, um, we you, we had to make sure that um, we remembered we were a couple as well. You know, you're not just the parents of the sick child. You have to remember that you are a couple and you are a mother and a wife and all those other things as well. Um, you know, I suppose if I can give anybody any advice is that please remember to take time for yourself. Don't ever feel bad for taking time for yourself either when you're going through anything like this because you have to. Because my, I have a saying, you know, you can't pour for an empty cup. If you don't look after yourself, you will have nothing to give. It was incredibly important to look after ourselves as well as, as being able to look after the boys. Wonderful to talk to you. Good to meet you. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks very much. Kelly, we so appreciate uh, your time and uh, your honesty in sharing your story. It's, it's, truly, you. it's truly remarkable. Thanks ever so much for having me. Corey, I don't know about you, but that was a remarkable story, wasn't it? Oh, amazing. Yeah. And if one person hears that and it changes their life, it's worth us doing. Absolutely. Now, if you'd like to thank us for bringing some of these podcasts to you, then there are several ways you can do it. You can uh, like us on Facebook, which is great. We appreciate that. We have over 6,000 likes so far. And you can also give us a five-star rating on iTunes. And uh, we haven't talked much about iTunes, but uh, we are on iTunes. And if you give us a five-star rating, then it moves us up in the pecking order. And so we'd like to be in the top peck. We'd like to be in the top peck, yeah. (laughs) Instead of being pecked at, we'd like to be in the top peck. (laughs) Or another way you could say thank you is to go to CannabisHealthRadio.com and make a donation. It would be very much appreciated, and nothing is too small. And to you, wherever you are in the world, we thank you very much for listening, and we thank you for your support. You've been listening to the Cannabis Health Radio podcast. Visit our website, CannabisHealthRadio.com, and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. I'm Josh Kincaid, Capital Markets Analyst and host of your cannabis business podcast, The Talking Hedge, and newest member on Podcon X. So come on over and check out The Talking Hedge. We talk about business news, interviews, investments, events, all that stuff. So come nerd out with me over at The Talking Hedge. You can find me at the TalkingHedgePodcast.com or on all your favorite podcast platforms. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe, or don't, and I'm out.